Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, it's Aaron Lammer. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. This week, we are running interviews with winners of this year's George Polk Award. Uh, This episode features an interview with Dan Chang of the Miami Herald, who, alongside his co-writer, Carol Marvin Miller, wrote a series called Birth and Betrayal, which is about a Florida law that sought to lower malpractice costs uh, by blocking people from suing over uh, mistakes made during their children's birth and instead gave them a fund and that fund uh, has had some problems. Uh, It was produced in partnership with ProPublica and uh, won this year's uh, George Polk Award for state reporting. So here's Dan Chang. Hello, uh, Dan Chang of the Miami Herald. Welcome to the show. Hi, Aaron. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Generally, I try to give a summary of what an article is about, and I feel like this one's a difficult one. So the story that won the Polk Award, give me the the nutshell of what the story is. Well, look, the, the nutshell is that this was a uh, no-fault compensation fund that the state had set up uh, back in 1988 to compensate a particular class of parents, which was those whose children were catastrophically injured at birth, usually from a lack of oxygen or oxygen deprivation uh, or spinal cord injury. And these parents lost the right to sue in court, and instead they were forced into this fund where they were treated uh, very much like a liability, or many of them were anyway. They had to basically fight for everything from things that you would think are medically necessary, like medication, wheelchairs to other things like special treatments for their children uh, that might just help make their lives easier. And uh, uh, this program that had promised to make these parents' lives easier to help them care for their catastrophically injured children, it didn't do that for them. As a journalist working in Florida, do you find that you cover a lot of stories like this where it's like it works this way in 49 states and then it works this way in Florida? I certainly feel sometimes like Florida is special and different from other states. It sort of stands out in a bad way. But look, there is, to be fair, another state that had this program. In fact, it adopted it about one year before Florida. And that state still has it, and that's Virginia. And these are Virginia and Florida are the only states that have a specific no-fault compensation fund like this. And they were both created around the same time because of a medical malpractice insurance crisis that both states said were driving doctors from their states or causing them to stop performing certain high-risk surgeries. And obstetrics or delivering children is pretty high risk because if something goes wrong, a child survives, you need to provide for a lifetime of medical care. 
So before the story, did you have a lot of experience in reporting on the healthcare system? I did. I've been reporting on healthcare since about 2013. What does someone on that beat look for? And what did this story look like when it, it first came to you? I think that someone on this beat, on the healthcare beat, looks for stories from the perspective of patients, from people who want to access or need to access the healthcare system, and for different reasons cannot. It's a pretty complicated system. It's difficult for most people to understand how their health insurance works. That's if they have health insurance. And then if they don't, it's a whole other system that they go through. What you look for is access issues and then accountability for that. And that accountability can be spread pretty wide. It can be the provider. It could be also maybe a lack of oversight or regulation from the state. It could be the insurer. In a way, this story has echoes of stories about privatization, right? You're taking something that would historically be the purview of a judge awarding damages and putting it into the hands of what sort of operates as a kind of a hedge fund, uh, a, a investment body that that pays out. In looking into that, because this is not like a judge and jury kind of situation, what kind of access to files, records, and that kind of thing did you have going into the investigation? So we had uh, the NICA claims just sort of walk you through the process, a parent for whom you know, the worst day in their lives probably is, has occurred. But at some point, they had signed a form about this, acknowledging this program. What happens when you sign this form is that you agree to go through a, an administrative court, which is very similar to a, a court of law. And Florida has a very good public records law. And so all of these um, hearings and, and, well, at least the petitions, the written petitions and if there were appeals or denials and approvals, all of those things are contained in the uh, Division of Administrative uh, Hearings uh, records online. So we were able to scrape that database and get all of the cases, and there were roughly 1,500 of them. So we had access to those, but what we didn't know was how many of those were children who were still alive or represented children who were still alive, because oftentimes these injuries can result in death shortly after a child is born, but the parents still have to go through the process of applying for acceptance into this program and then receiving the $100,000 compensation, which was the, the one-time payment that they would receive from the program and a $10,000 funeral benefit, they called it. And those amounts have since been increased since our stories were published. And I have to say that NICO was pretty cooperative when we asked for records. They wouldn't allow us to, to see, and we tried to sue to get this, to get a list of the names of children who, who died. They, they took us to court and argued before a judge that the Miami Herald just wanted to print the names of dead children on its front page, um, uh, which was a pretty preposterous um, accusation. But uh, we lost that case. And so uh, what we were trying to get were these things called activity logs, notes of conversations that the claims managers for NICA would have with parents. So parents would call saying, you know, I need help. There was a hurricane and I don't have a generator. Can I go to a hotel? You would see all these kinds of things, um, different requests and conversations from parents and what the administrator would tell them, which was often, did you get your insurance to cover it? Uh, has, has somebody else stepped in to try to pay? Because NICA always considered itself the quote unquote payer of last resort. 
So you you worked on this case uh, with another reporter. How long from when you first started working on this to when it was published? Let me see here. So Carol Marvin Miller is my colleague, and she's the deputy investigations editor of Miami Herald. And yes, we worked on it together. I want to say there was a period of time where I had to jump off because of the pandemic. So we started requesting records, I want to say, in about 2019. Yeah, in 2019, we started writing to NICA and saying, tell us about your organization. Send us what the handbooks that you send to families. And, you know, we want some minutes of your past board meetings uh, to see what you guys, you know, discussed. And I think this raised a little bit of a red flag at NICA because they were curious, like, who are these reporters who are asking about us? And that was kind of one of NICA's secret weapons, I think, was that they were pretty obscure. Not a lot of people knew who they were, how they functioned. That, I think, provided them some ability to operate very much the way, however they wanted to. So we started requesting records in 2019. uh, And then once the pandemic hit in about March of 2020, we went to working from home full time and I had to cover the pandemic full time. So I had to peel away until about, I want to say, September or October of 2020. And then I started working with Carol once again. And she did the lines work of really going through a lot of those cases that I said that we'd scraped off of the Division of Administrative Hearings websites. She had identified some really good cases. And, you know, we also found some parents just combing through the records of missed redactions. Uh, we were able to find uh, Jamie Acebo, for instance, who was uh, the mother uh, in, in part one. We also found them through speaking with uh, nonprofit groups and advocates for uh, the disabled and handicapped. And I had called uh, one group called the Florida Health Justice Project to ask if, hey, have you ever heard of this program, NICA? And they happened to know a family who had NICA, and that was Justin Wynn's family uh, up in Jacksonville, which was just a touching family and story. I would say that was the challenging part, was finding examples of people who had been in the program for some time and in some cases, like the winds, still weren't aware because nobody at NICA was really telling them of what they were eligible to receive. Um, it was pretty heartbreaking to hear about Julie Wynn working dead-end job after dead-end job trying to provide for her three children when NICA should have been paying her a salary for caring for her one disabled child that would have given them a lot more financial security and, and allowed her to do what she wanted to do, which was to care for her son. That, that was really a moving experience to see them realize all that the potential that this program could have had, uh, the impact on their lives, because their brother was already like 24, and then to suddenly become their own best advocates because they had trusted the program so much and implicitly that they never thought that this would have been withheld from them in that way. So they felt very betrayed by that, uh, but they also were empowered by, by what they learned. When I asked earlier about sort of what you look for in a story in the healthcare industry, you said the perspective of a patient and, you know, with 1500 potential patients, or I guess less among those who were still alive, there's multiple people that could have been the center of this story. So when you're sort of looking through a bunch of patients like this, what are you looking for in the one that you're going to put in the center of the story? And when you feel like you have found someone who can really sort of stand in as the patient in the story, how do you think about managing that relationship with the person who's been through this traumatic experience? 
Carol and I had a an agreement or an understanding that we would not leave any of these families worse off than they were before. That we wanted them to feel good about having shared their their stories with us because this is very painful to ask people to relive such a traumatic experience and not just a traumatic experience of, of their child being catastrophically disabled at birth, but having to, to fight with NICA and, you know, um, that, that almost felt, I think, to some people like reopening old wounds. But in terms of how we chose, there are a lot of different things that go into that. I would say in broad strokes, you always want a sympathetic character who is facing a tremendous obstacle um, and can hopefully overcome it, right? But then, you know, that character has to be willing to open up to you too. And so we have to have access and they have to be willing to provide us that access. You know, we have to be very open and upfront about who we are and what we're doing. And when we called Jamie Acebo, literally just a cold call after we found her name, you know, she sounded very surprised because her, her daughter had already been dead for a few years and she thought that she was done with NICA. And she was very like, I don't want to say flattered, but like surprised that a couple of reporters would call and ask about this program, NICA. And we um, asked her about some of the things that we'd heard because in those minutes that we had requested early on of board meetings, there weren't very many parents that ever went to the meetings, but there was one instance. So it stood out when they did. And there was a family that went before the board, a mom who was very well-spoken and talked about how the program wasn't meeting the needs of children. It was very, you know, it wasn't providing enough help for families. It wasn't doing anything to help them come together and, you know, give each other support, that it was very focused on sort of very young children. But once they got into adolescence or even adulthood, there was nothing there for them. She made a lot of really good points. And so, you know, we had some idea that, well, if she's feeling this, oh, we're curious how other parents were. So we, we were very open and we told her, look, we want to know what your experience was like. And, you know, we understand that for some parents it was helpful. Maybe for others it wasn't. And that was kind of all we had to say. You know, we just like, it was sort of like, tell us about yourself and your experience in NICA. And she did. And it was, it was a fight for her. And, and she was grateful, I think, certainly for the help that NICA had provided but she never, she, she, she certainly did not feel like they had delivered what they had promised when the state took away her right to sue. And when they took away her day in court, this replacement wasn't worth it. Was it commensurate with the right that she had lost? Not really, not in her opinion. In certain situations, you're dealing with a bad policy and you maybe could point to a good policy that's an alternative to it. In this case, you're pointing out very, very clear flaws to the NICA system, yet the system of uh, people all suing each other in hospitals is also probably not a very well-liked system. How did you think about that aspect of the story and the way things work in the other 48 states versus the way that they work in Virginia and Florida? So we were very familiar with Florida, but obviously not every state. And so we reached out to experts. And I got to tell you that some of the experts that we spoke to liked this kind of a program. And I feel like in the end, we came to see what the value of a program like this could be if it were run in a way that you weren't made to fight tooth and nail for every claim that you wanted or arbitrarily denied without any real 
explanation or justification for why they weren't providing this, this service to your child. There was one guy I remember in particular at Stanford, his name's David Stutter, and I believe he's from New Zealand. And he told us about how in New Zealand they have a no-fault compensation program for injuries, medical injuries, and that the program is very well liked in that country because it's fair and because it provides the medical services that people need. And then we spoke to the guy who ran the September 11th uh, Victims Compensation Fund up in New York, and he, he told us about a very important part that we hadn't thought about, and that was that um, when they were sort of hearing families' uh, petitions for their family members or loved ones' death, that they needed a forum where they could express their feelings, where they could maybe confront whatever they felt it was that it caused us, you know. And we thought about that too. I think that what many of the families told us they wanted and that we unfortunately couldn't necessarily provide is that they wanted to understand what happened to their child. In a medical lawsuit, whether you win or lose, you get some sense of you know closure on that. And a lot of families told us that they weren't able to get that. So you're right. I think in most medical malpractice cases, families uh, or the plaintiffs don't get anything. So yeah, we did think about that. And we think that NICA could be a good program and we think it's a better program now. Um, and in some ways you could say that it does more than suing does. So you've been um, reporting on on the healthcare system for almost a decade now. If you were talking to a young reporter who who was just uh, dipping their toes in, what advice would you have, and maybe what mistakes did you make early on that you know better now? Well, first, I want to take issue with this young thing. That, that automatically <laughs> implies that, uh, that I'm old, and, and I am, but I, I don't like to be reminded of that. Um, look, advice is that I think that. Um, the same that it would have for almost any bee. You know, you got to be curious and you have to be willing to learn because this is a complicated or it can be in the United States, especially a complicated topic. If you want to find out where people are having trouble getting what the, you know, life and death care that they need and who's getting hurt, you got to sort of understand how the system works and what the incentives are. You have to listen. That's the other thing because Everybody has to have a run-in with the healthcare system at some point in their lives. And so healthcare touches people across all walks of life. And if you listen to people, they tell you about their healthcare experiences and encounters, you're going to learn a lot more. Well, congratulations again on this award. And uh, thank you so much for this interview. Uh, you're, you're welcome for the interview. And thank you for the, the time. That was the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thanks to Dan Chang. Thanks to my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Thanks to our editor, Gabriella Saldivia. Thanks to everyone at the George Polk Awards. And thanks to Vox Media, who help us produce this show. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. 
Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.